yesterday I was driving it and a check engine light came on. I'm like, what the, what is going yeah, on? Here? Seriously. And, and I wasn't really paying attention. And I, but I did the other day, I noticed that the um, radiator fan was staying on like 30 seconds after I shut the car off. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And it, you know, and then I heard it like running as I was driving. Like, what's going on? So I did real quick Google search. Come to find out, very, very common $23 part that breaks on these GM cars all oh the God. time because of where it is. Oh, man. However, watching videos of how to get to the stupid thing. Oh, God. What do you got to take apart? <laughs> well, one dude actually took the whole entire front grill off, Damn. which that's a big hard no. Oh. I've, <laughs> I've um, done that before. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen the pictures. <laughs> oh, your, yeah. <laughs> on, on your caravan, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big hard no. Uh, so it's it literally resides between the exhaust manifold and the dipstick. It's like literally wedged right in between that. But wiring harnesses pass right in front of it. Of course. So, And then the wiring harnesses, because they are going to your spark plugs, they're going to a couple of different relays and all these other things. It's got, it's full attention. So you can't just like pull it out of the way. It's, you know, they're like, after doing this several times, the last time where I was doing this video, you know, I got it down to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. and, and so he didn't have to pull apart the car to get to it. Mm -hmm. He did have to pull apart a few things and unscrew a few things. Which, you know, I'm totally up for that. But if he's done it several times and has got it down to 30 minutes yep. with all of the right tools, right. and I ain't got the right tools, right. and don't feel like going out and buying a bunch of extra tools just to change one stupid $23 part. Yeah. <sighs> so guess what I'll be doing today? <laughs> that. <laughs> so uh... I've carved out two hours instead of the half hour that he had. Okay. To, uh, yeah. Okay. So you got to start a timer. I want. I want to know how long it actually takes. That would be great. I'm, I am. I am most certainly going to follow the the one guy who kind of got it down. Yeah. The only thing that I don't have that he has is so it's got one of these like whatever engineer decided that this was the thing that you were supposed to do should just. I mean, clearly engineers who design motors and how to like you know fit all of this new technology into an engine bay. Mm-hmm has never actually worked on a car before. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. It's, some of these things are so physically impossible to get to. Right. And for some reason, sure mm -hmm. enough, these are the jackasses that want to just say, hey, let's do that. Oh, like yeah. trying to get to going through the wheel well. Yes, that's what I was thinking. To get to, get to a light. Yep. You open up the hood, you can see the top of the light right there. How hard was it to just do it the old-fashioned way of being able to... Well, remember, like, on, on old cars, you could, like, get in the engine bay with the motor and <laughs> work on oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean... You could sit on the fender the, as a bench. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With your one feet inside. Cars, I'll tell you, one of the best cars that I'd ever worked on, late 60s, early 70s, Triumph Spitfire, or GT6 is what it was, but, you know, basically a Spitfire. Yeah. You lift the entire hood open and the tire is just sitting right there, you know, nothing over the top of it. And you can sit on the tire and work on the car. Oh, that's cool. It was, it was like saying. perfectly comfortable. <laughs> it was like, it also it was, had like it 67 like, horsepower, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, 
I mean, we ain't saying that was a fast car or anything, but it was an easy car to work on. And well, it was one, British. You had to work on it a lot. Yes. <laughs> this I know. They All designed it because they knew, <laughs> oh, people are going to be in here a lot. <laughs> yeah. My favorite, my favorite time of ever working on a car was my TR7. And that one was just plagued with problem after problem after problem. I think they all but, are. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't stop people from owning them. And yeah, 19, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, 82, I think was when Triumph and basically the British version of General, of General Motors, it was British Leyland. Mm-hmm. Once that, that had gone out of business and it owned like, you know, Rover and Jaguar and MG, it had all the marquees under it, including Triumph. But there was like labor strikes and all this other stuff, as you know, one does in Europe on like a biannual basis and i'm working on this car after i've already had a couple of like electrical fires and as i'm like pulling some like the carpets out and stuff and there's a because i'm trying to trace a wiring harness there's a red tag on one of the wiring harnesses that i'm trying to uncover and find out where it leads to and all this other stuff and it's face down and i flip over the red tag and it only had one word on it rejected (laughs) <laughs> and here it is in the car yes. that I've had multiple like electrical fires in. Oh my god! That I've had multiple. It, like like the first one was not the red flag <laughs> warning. Well, I mean, the first one, the first one, it didn't. It was a uh, ignition switch wearing harness, so that was kind of a direct lead through the firewall into the uh, ignition, uh, in, in into the uh, starter area. So. That one was actually a little bit easier for me to trace down. And then the, the second one was just a, uh, a miswire or a misground on my part. And then the third one was the one that led me to the this whole entire thing is shit. Oh, my gosh. Dude. <sighs> Brutal. Rejected. Rejected. <laughs> you know, how'd you feel? <laughs> oh, man. That's crazy. That reminds me of, like, the old... Uh, I was doing some research on the, what they call it, like the Toyota way, uh, the Kanban process, which is like this, the way that they ran their assembly lines was that anybody on the line could stop the process at any time to fix the problem that needed to be fixed Mm. right then. Basically, completely opposite of how American car companies did it, which was like, keep the line moving no matter what, right? And so like, error after error would just snowball into these crazy things where the fenders were falling off the cars as they were driving them off the line because somebody didn't get the bolts in because the threads weren't tapped in the thing correctly, but it the line couldn't stop, right? Like people were seriously penalized if the line stopped. So the Toyota process was, and it's like world renowned, right? For Because of, you know, Toyotas have this, this world renowned uh, reliability, right? And this basically came out of this process that they designed, which was like, it doesn't matter what rank you are. It doesn't matter what part of the line you're on. It doesn't matter. And there was this card system. And that's what the Kanban thing is. It's like, there was this little card that would follow a car through the entire process and people would mark things on these cards. And it was basically like making sure that everything actually happened along the way. And anybody could stop that line if anything was wrong. And no matter how long it took to fix, it was better than letting it get to the line and then trying to fix it later. Because everybody knows that when that happens, like you just, there's so many things you forget about, you're not going to fix it Mm -hmm. later, right? So 
So this whole like just in time process where it's like when something needs to be addressed, you address it just in time. And if if a, a part needs to be made to fix a machine, you do it right then. Um, and, and so it also led to this kind of other outcome, which was Toyota didn't have warehouses full of parts, right? So they've they they create they made the parts as they needed them for the cars that were on the line instead of like the american way which was like have warehouses completely full to the gills of parts and now you're paying to store these parts and then you have these huge inventories that you're tracking all the time um and probably tracking incorrectly uh so mm -hmm. It was pretty interesting. There, there was a podcast I listened to on this where they basically, like Pontiac had, they hired Toyota to come out to their Fremont plant out here in California and basically like look at the way that they were running their line because they, they couldn't, they were like, how do we compete? We can't compete, right? Uh, Toyota's eating our lunch. So they actually hired Toyota to come in and do this. Like it was so culturally different than what they, the American car makers were used to, and not even just the car makers. Like the car makers, obviously, the people in the leadership saw the value, but the people on the line mm -hmm. were like, no one's going to come in here and tell us how to do this, right? And they yeah. kind of self-sabotaged. It was a sad story, man. It's just like, because people would, they didn't want to change how they worked. I mean, and the whole time I'm listening to this story, right, I'm thinking about how we do things in architecture. It, <laughs> I was going to say, wow, that sounds like you know, a lot of parallels to what we do. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's interesting because now you see this lean processes, you see these Six yeah. Sigma, uh, you know, there's people like totally drink the Kool-Aid on that kind of stuff too now. And you see it with lean IPD. There definitely is a ton of value there. And it's also like really highly collaborative, right? It's like, there, there's a lot of really interesting ideas that come out of the Japanese culture. And like one of those that I'm thinking of is where in large meetings, uh, the youngest people get to speak first and tell everybody their ideas about how to solve problems so that they're not, I think we've talked about this before on the show, but it was basically in order to not make them feel like they're having to please the bosses by, by repeating what the bosses say but I mean, mm -hmm. bosses is a lame word, but you know, like yeah. people higher up in the, in the company, they didn't want them to feel like they were contradicting if they had a, a, a different idea, which they were, they were experiencing that. So they changed it to say like, okay, they, the younger people always get to talk first and get their ideas out because a lot of times they have good ideas, but they just won't say them because they're contradictory to what somebody higher up the levels right. already said. So it just goes unsaid, and then no, but nothing ever gets better, right? So it's kind of in the service of the every, good ideas come from anywhere, like so that that's just another kind of interesting kind of Japanese cultural thing that has penetrated throughout the business world. And I, I, I again, I kind of think about that when I think about architectural, you know, when how decisions get made on architectural projects and how many times uh, young people are not allowed to speak or their ideas are shot down immediately um, rather than kind of fostered through the through a process and even not just the fact that the ideas about like you know how to either design the thing but also even like the process of how to like work yeah i mean we're so entrenched in the way this is just the way that we've you know done things and you know how many times have we said when we're out on a uh 
job site or something like that, when you hear a GC or somebody say, yeah, we've been doing this for 25 years. And you're just like, well, we do it this way because we do it this way. Yeah, exactly. It's how we've always and, done it. You know, and then there's, there's this sense of, hey, there is a different way, new way, a efficient way to do these things. And why not? Let's consider those. I mean, why not become there, there are a lot more people out there that have a contributing idea to the work smarter, not harder you know, yeah. kind of ideology. That yeah, totally. We just seem to always keep forgetting that that is an option. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I was I, I was asked in a PM training session, I was asked if, you know, it's just, well, why did you get into architecture? And, you know, I kind of told the you know, story about me and, you know, the Pontiac Silverdome and all this other stuff. And then, yeah, I kind of like wrapped it up with, I was just like, it may sound strange and all, but strangely love it. You know, and it, I understand that there are some issues and stuff in this particular thing, and I'm willing to stick with it. I think the only, only the next step, or I think I do a, a reasonably decent job, but not well enough, is to how do you make it better? How do you change it? How do you improve it? How do you become more efficient? How do you, you know, think about like, you, you know, go back to the analogy of, Japanese auto industry coming in to try to streamline and, and improve the U.S. auto industry, and just think about like the Americans asked them to do that because they were looking to compete with you know the, the same people that they were asking help from, right? And in a way, we need to do the same thing, right? We because yeah. you know you you've talked about like we've talked about and you've talked about the incredibly low percentage of projects that are actually done by architects. So what is making those those projects with the other percent of the percentage um, of people of buildings that are getting done, what are making them more efficient? I mean, because there's a disconnect between those because they're ugly, but they are profitable because they're getting done. So where is the middle ground where you can be valuable to those kind of projects as an architect, elevate the design of those, but also not become this big like cog in the middle of that, you know, efficiency to actually become more productive, but then also be able to affect higher percentage of buildings that are being constructed. Yeah. And it makes me think of, I went on some tours of some prefab facilities out in Phoenix where there's tons and tons of prefab going on. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it has a lot to do with local legislation stuff that allows it to to happen there more conducively than in places like California, because a lot of the work that's being produced there is getting shipped to other states, actually, not necessarily put up there. Um, so it, it comes down to logistics and things like that, right? But but prefab is taken off as if you know the, the okay. writing is on the wall. And 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 what the reason I bring it up is because you know this lean IPD, uh, this Kanban, this just in time, all of this is like you know, kind of points back to a common theme of this highly collaborative process where everyone's at the table all the time. And, you know, you've heard of BIM big rooms and um, things like that, where where on a project, people are solving problems in real time with all the trades at the table or all of the consultants at the table, you know, depending on what phase of the, the project you're in and solving it right then and there. Uh, everybody make, has an agreement. They do it right then and there. And that just becomes kind of like a new way of working. And what's interesting to me is to see these construction companies who've kind of spun off these prefab units or mm -hmm. these new startups that are prefab. And 
it was interesting for me to to walk in there as an architect and say like we're you know we're interested in see, in learning about your process which is kind of what we're talking about right now right like reaching out and learning from right. other ones and they're and they're like you are the first people to come here and we're so excited to kind of talk about these crossover opportunities and i was kind of like blown away that because I didn't, f- I felt like we're all we're late to the game, right? I don't feel like we're the yes. first ones yes. there. And by going there and just trying to, you know, make a connection and learn about their process and their facility and how they're doing things, they're super excited by that prospect. They're super excited that they're going to have the opportunity to learn something from us, and that they're going to be able to show us something, a different way of doing things than we're used to. I'm pretty, I was pretty blown away by that. But then, like, just seeing how. those facilities work as like this it is kind of a production line but it also is also like there there are certain things that they don't do that we do all the time like any kind of design thinking right like they're they're very much production oriented they're very much like trying to find the efficiencies and and to me like architects kind of fit into this in a really in a unique way because they don't have that training and we do and they're they're like really accepting of that. They're not saying like we don't need that. They're saying, yeah, we want to like offer the best solutions, right? And the best solutions are well designed solutions. They're not just efficient mm-hmm. solutions, right? So I, I found that it was interesting how open they were. Um and I think it does kind of fit this highly collaborative model though, if you if you think about it that way. Yeah, absolutely. We both benefit. They benefit from an improved product. We benefit from improved access to other buildings that are being built. And it's just this, you know, symbiotic relationship that we could foster that for some reason we just decide not to. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, how many times when I was doing, and I didn't do a lot, but I did a handful of um, custom residential um, houses that were modular Mm -hmm. and they were going up faster, you know, and I, you know, probably sung the praises multiple times on, you know, why I liked the the process. But what I liked most about it was I would get these like just horrible kind of like comments or faces and whatever from people who were trying to have me convince to them what makes, you know, the house that I'm have just finished designing, what makes that explain to me why that's not a trailer. Mm. Yeah. It's just like you're just not getting it. You're you're poo pooing it because of its it being fit, built in a factory. It's it's not two by four construction. It's two by six construction. It is not you know x amount of R value. It is y amount of R value. It is you know all of these different things that actually are far better. And so you know, climate con- controlled construction is what we were trying to rebrand it, just so that when you kept saying modular, it's just like well you mean a trailer like or a manufactured home, right? Well. Well, yes, but no. Right. It is so much more. It's not leaving your framing exposed to the elements and getting rained on and then it not fully drying out when you decide to cover it over with your building paper. Right. And now you're trapping in moisture and all this other stuff. Right. And so from the get-go, it's better constructed. It doesn't mean that it's less designed. It just means it's better constructed. Yeah, and, constructed. and and there are there are a lot of advantages in that, and there are obviously a lot of disadvantages too, right? Like it all comes down to logistics. If if you can't yep. Yep. if you can't get the thing to the site, like that's where you have to start. Can we get a thing to the site? Can we get a crane? Can we make it up this 
curvy road with switchbacks? It, what about power lines? Like all of those kinds of things. What about restrictions on the roads that we have to deal with to even get a thing there? What it comes down to all that kind of stuff. Um, because if you can't do that, you can't do it modularly, right? At all. It exactly. just, it won't work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, you yeah. kind of start in a completely different place. Whereas when you're approaching a project as it's going to be built on the site, like you can do anything, right? So exactly. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't mean that like it can work anywhere, but it is also, there are tons of advantages. Like you're pointing out, like you can actually run multiple shifts on a project. You can pay living wages to people because they show up to work every day instead of um, feast or famine, right? Like they're, they're contractors who work on a line of, and, and they're building modular buildings all the time and there's job security there right they're not they're not worrying about the weather like you said yeah there's there's so many things like that uh that all the tools are there you know the company owns all the tools they don't have to provide their own they don't have to replace their own tools uh they don't have to have insurance on their on their it's so there's so many things like that and they can they can quality control you know every little bit and piece of it i mean oh the the tolerances are way higher (laughs) yeah one of the one of my favorite things uh is i've got a friend from high school who she owns a finished painting company and she's always posting these just amazingly horrid framing horrors you know custom frame jobs that are just really bad you know the alignment's bad the the finishing is bad. The trimming is bad. You know, all of this stuff is just bad. And it's because you're trying to like rush through things and you're not really trying to quality control. You're trying to meet a deadline. Well, right. I had a 2,600 square foot house that was built in 10 days in the factory and it was shipped out on site. And the biggest challenge that we dealt with on that one, it was the Department of Transportation from yeah. the factory in Georgia right. down to Florida and what was the requirements between the two states? Oh yeah, it's huge. And, yeah, and then and then the permitting process because most people didn't understand the permitting process, mm-hmm. so I had to get it permitted through the Department of Transportation in Florida rather than the building department. That's and it crazy. Was, yeah, it's those like weird little other factors in stuff like that. So, or getting so your building yeah. officials to to go to Georgia to do inspections inside of a facility. Right. <laughs> so there's there are a lot of you have to think about things very differently. Yeah. And the tolerances, like I said, they're, they're higher. They're, they're just consistent, right? They yes, probably exactly. are higher, but they are very exactly. consistent because you're, it's, re, it's all about making got, things as repeatable as possible. Yeah. yeah. You have one guy doing the same thing over and over and over again, but yeah. has gotten to the point where he's got this craft and expertise and he's yeah. not reinventing the wheel every time that he does it. It's not, he's, he's doing this over and over again. So it's a lot easier for him to do his own quality control. Yeah. It's and interesting. that goes for, the framer, the in, the insulation guy, the window guy. This is what I do, and I'm going to do 50 of these a day. I'm going to do 100 of these a day. It's auto assembly mentality, but for the you know construction. 